again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Lass right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the KFR podcast. And today, Brian, we are going back in time to spring 1991 when I was well into my sophomore year at the then Memphis State University working as a Hill columnist for the Daily Helmsman newspaper with my weekly opinion piece back talk by day and loading FedEx airplanes bound for Japan at night. And between all that, I was breaking more hearts than Shawn Michaels ever dreamed about, guzzling loads of cheap beer and whiskey and copious amounts of Taco Bell. It's good to have you here today, Judge Kavanaugh. I liked beer. I, I still <laughs> like beer. I'm drinking beer right now with Mil Mascaris. Oh, uh, let's not go down that road. Enough with Mil Mascaris. But uh, as you were saying, Your Honor. <sighs> but that was just during the week. <laughs> Excuse me. <sighs> On Saturday mornings, I'd leave my drunken frat brothers, well, that's a little redundant, behind, and usually a doe-eyed sorority chick at the Pi Kappa Alpha house. Don't look for it. It's not there anymore. For my other job, refereeing Channel 5 Wrestling every Saturday morning. Little did I know at that time that our guest today and her man, two green longhorns from Texas, would eventually blossom into big stars for WCW before stunning Steve would eventually get the call that would turn him into one of the biggest wrestlers and t-shirt sellers like those found at memphiswrestlingtees.com ever, the ringmaster. Well, no, no, hold on, Scott. That's not right at all. It was our guest who helped thaw out her husband's stone-cold career by suggesting a name that would turn him into a red-hot million-dollar man, but he would ultimately pay a huge price in the end, his marriage to our guest today. Jeannie Clark will be joining us here on Kentucky Fried Wrestling to reminisce about her time in Memphis with referee Scott Bowden, who she clearly does not remember from their USWA days. She she remembers me. And discuss how addiction proved to be too powerful an opponent for those in her immediate squared circle and eventually for Jeannie. Uh, Yeah, all kidding aside, this is a very candid discussion with Jeannie, and actually it's the first time I've spoken with her in more than 27 years, which is just amazing. Uh, And please keep in mind, because of the time difference with Jeannie and England, we take this at 6.30 in the morning, so I was only on my second cup of Yorkshire tea, so I likely sound as groggy as Randy Hales on a Facebook livecast. I can tell you this about our guest. Jeannie remains beautiful inside and out i'd like my co-host we'll be right back with Jeannie clark right after this stunning message stunning steve austin and the lovely but oh so dangerous Jeannie, making their way to ringside you're not happy with just hurting a person you just want to make sure they're taken care of for good i go back to wednesday night yeah i'm glad you brought up the fourth of july because i want to come out here on a serious note today you know the other fourth of july the other day me and Jeannie had a mixed tag match with chris and tony and uh, i had chris laid out in the middle of the ring he was going nowhere Tony comes in because she's concerned for Chris, and I'm up on that top turnbuckle fixing to jump off and break every bone in his body. So she, she lays down on top of Chris and sacrifices herself, is trying to save Chris from me, right? I look down at her, she's got those big scared eyes, and she's begging me, 
No, Steve, don't jump, don't jump. But I jumped. So I want to apologize right now. I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry to these people. I'm sorry. Tony, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't break every stinking bone in your back. You ever get in my way again, and I swear I'll cripple you for life. Don't ever interfere again. Chris, you've come up with every stipulation that I've ever heard. And you know what? With every stipulation he comes up with, me and Jeannie destroy him. Then they cart Jeannie off, they cart Tony off on a stretcher. Now Jeannie, being as concerned as she is, such a loving sweetheart, goes over to check on the injured Tony. As she's being carried off on the stretcher, somehow the uncoordinated fool that she is falls off the stretcher. What a sad story. So anyway, me and Jeannie were concerned, so we didn't have time to go get a card, a get well card, so I made one this morning. And it says, Tony, get well fast, you stupid tramp. Stunning Steve Austin and Jeannie. Get well fast so that when you do come back in this ring, we'll put you out for good. And Chris, build up those legs of yours because you're gonna be pushing her around in a wheelchair. But not for long, baby, because you're gonna be in a wheelchair right beside her. And you can mark my words, baby, take it to the bank. I think Jeannie's got some things she wants to talk about too. So don't wave us off, we've got some more to say. Yeah, first of all, do you, do you really think that your opinions of me make any difference? You low-life, scabby, nine-to-five, sleaze-of-the-earth people. You, you should be honored in my presence. My family are related to royalty. You could never compare with me. You could never try to be like me. You're beyond any help. This perfect body is totally natural. Women pay $3,000 to have a body like this. This hair that took me years to grow, your husbands are drooling over me. You are low-life nine-to-fivers. Now, Tony's out here last week shouting off her big mouth. She wants me to come here and sign a contract. She wants all these matches, all these stipulations. Who's here, her or me? I'm standing here right now. Where is she? She's not here. Are you, are you uh, having a fantasy about me, Craig? I, am I, do you have to look down my top too? I can't help this effect I have on these men. Chris, shut up. Now, Tony, you're a coward. You're at home where you belong, cooking, cleaning, ironing shirts. You're a house, you're a housemate. You tell me I'm jealous. I want to be back with that nasty, manipulative man. Are you kidding me? Come on now, come on. Why would I, the independent woman I am, want to be at home, cooking, cleaning, ironing shirts, Chris Adams can't even pack his own wrestling kit. You're jealous, ladies, you're jealous. You could never be like me. 
They're jealous because they could never be like me. Thank you. Thank you, Jeannie. Oh, well, a few words from Jeannie. You know, it's a, it's a pleasure to interview Jeannie sometimes, but... Uh, Don't be prejudiced now, Craig. I'm not being prejudiced. I just didn't like the insinuation that she made. I was just conducting an interview. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. I met today's guest for the first time in the hallway of WMC-TV at 1960 Union Avenue back in February 1991. Known then simply as Jeannie with no surname, a la Madonna, Cher, and other entertainment divas of the era, this <laughs> young lady with striking features and a charming British accent was accompanying her real-life beau to the ring, a young greenhorn by the name of Steve Williams. Okay, not that Steve Williams, Dr. Death, but... Steve Austin, stunning Steve from Hollywood. I know everyone likes to say I knew so-and-so was going to be a big superstar all along, but it was truly evident to me that this Austin kid had the psychology down to an extent already, and he had the it factor to be a big star one day. Of course, I had it all wrong. I envisioned him to sort of be in a Ric Flair type with this stone-cold, stunning beauty at his side. I, I really thought that they could be the hottest act in wrestling. And in a way, that's how the story turned out, but it was to be no fairy tale, especially for our guest. It's my honor to introduce former USWA valet and the author of Shattered Glass, and quite frankly, it's one of the most honest wrestling books I've ever read. Jeannie Clark. Jeannie, welcome to KFR. Hi, and thank you so much for having me. Well, Jeannie, um, I'm sure you remember totally this 19-year-old kid coming up to you uh, and Steve asking for a finish to, <laughs> to one of your very first appearances on USWA television. What were your first thoughts uh, and opinion of me? I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm totally, totally kidding there. Um, but do you remember at all any of those early days uh, of I, appearing I'm in Memphis? I do, and there wasn't that many in Memphis. Um, I remember the, uh, if I can remember rightly, I hope I do, was um, you had to kind of, I had to keep distracting you when uh, the match was on and try to talk to you. Yes. Yes, which was which was very easy to do. For, <laughs> I was a nineteen-year-old uh, frat boy at the time, and uh, yeah, that, that, I, I was very easily distracted in, in those days. And but I also remember the the you know the whole throughout the match, you were distracting me, and and um, I guess I was just so so taking with your beauty that I ignored what was going on in the ring, allowing Steve to do also all sorts of uh, dirty little tricks. Uh, but in the end. I was so mesmerized uh, by, uh, so I believe it was Danny Davis perhaps giving him a suplex. And I was just staring up, just just, uh, just in awe of the suplex. And then that's when you slipped uh, Davis's leg and enabled Steve to get the, the, the pinfall, making me look like a total goof and really putting all the heat on the referee. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's such a, because you know, I hadn't been up uh, to Memphis a whole lot. And, um, and it was really nice meeting new people up there. But I, re I remember thinking that you were really a nice person to me. 
And uh, I, I don't think it was my very first time to Memphis. I actually had come to Memphis a little bit before uh, because my brother had come over from the UK to visit me. And uh, we flew to Memphis because he wanted to go see Gracelands, which uh, obviously is Elvis's home. Yeah. And and uh, when we got in there, uh, we, were, we were on this tour of, of Graceland. And one of the tour guys, we, we went downstairs and one of the tour guys said, does anybody know what the favorite sandwich of Elvis Presley was? <laughs> so so it was really quiet. And then my brother, just fresh from England, he goes, I do. It was peanut butter and banana. And the whole place just roared with laughter because of the way he pronounced it. It's one of those things you'd had to be in there, but <laughs> it's looking at me like, I did, it was peanut butter and banana. And I said, but it's the way you said it. It's banana here. Uh, right. <laughs> if, you, if you wasn't, it was just like, but we loved it in Memphis. And that was the first time I ever went, went there. But, uh, I always uh, had uh, a feeling that I'd really like Memphis. And I'd like to have worked there more. Yeah, it it, it it's a it's a it's a great town. Uh, uh, it's funny when I I took my wife uh, to Graceland not too long after we started dating. My wife is from the Midlands. Uh, she grew up uh, about two hours outside of Birmingham, and so uh, you know th- this was you know foreign country to, to her and. We were going through uh, the tour and we were watching the part that, you know, they have this film where Elvis had, uh, uh, you know, been drafted and he, you know, he refused to be an entertainer. He actually wanted to serve his country. And they, you know, they were doing this black and white interview with him and they said, well, what do you miss about Memphis? And he's like, oh, uh, you know, uh, I miss everything about Memphis. And my (laughs) wife was standing next to me and I started crying. Uh, because I guess I was a little bit more homesick than I realized after being in Los Angeles for a while. And, uh, and then my wife started crying. So the, the two of us are just <laughs> sort of holding each other and, uh, and bawling. Uh, and then I, and then I think, you know, the more that we, we toured the grounds and I was sharing, cause I knew Red West, who was one of the Memphis mafia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And had been Elvis's bodyguard really since high school when some kids tried to, beat him up for wearing some of the flashy clothes that he was wearing. Um, and you know, it was, it was just an emotional experience. And, uh, and, and, and one thing too, I think we started thinking about his, his addictions and how it just, yeah, it it really extinguished a very bright light and wasted his potential. Um, yes. Yeah. So sad because, that's another case of uh, addictions and some of it uh, being prescription. Some people think, oh, you know, the doctor gave him all the medication. So it's, you know, OK. It's not like a, but as we know, prescriptions are just as bad, actually, to, uh, you know, if you have pills that you can get from doctors, doesn't mean to say they're any better um than and illegal drugs. Yeah, and every everybody likes to joke about the prescription pad for Elvis's doctor, Doctor Nick. You know, which was they would say it was like an encyclopedia. Um, yes. He was just writing this, but even in the wrestling industry, as you as you found out, 
you know, there are all these Mark doctors who, you know, thought they were yes, doing the boys a favor and trying to get in good with them. I think it, I was reading your book. I was blown away that at one point, I believe you had 400 Ambien tablets um, in your possession. I think, I think what happened was um, when um, I moved to Texas and, and I started, because everybody has their reasons, um, I had some postnatal depression and some loneliness um at first i was just getting normal prescriptions but yeah the mark doctors had say do you want uh, a year supply do you want um a year supply soma and ambien and so therefore you you know chris adams had that as well before he died was seeing one of the mark doctors who gave him way way too much and uh those are just if not sometimes even more difficult to to get off of you know they get out of your system a lot slower some of them so yeah but I, one of the reasons I came home too because in this country is socialized medicine mm. and over here they give you the least they can because you don't pay for any of it you know so it's a yeah. it would be much more difficult to get hands your hands on a lot of pills Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, e- uh, even to today, I think you could pretty much if you go in with the symptoms you have in your mind, if you tell a doctor, I'm having trouble sleeping, you can they'll still rattle off a prescription for Ambien. You yeah. know, right away without without. And, and the thing is, without suggesting anything else, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, n- nothing, nothing about diet, nothing about uh, uh, meditation, yoga, I- any of these things that that could possibly alleviate the symptoms, uh, you know, and then maybe if come back in 30 days, if you're still not sleeping, then maybe we'll put you on a low dose of Ambien uh, that has to be refilled. I won't give you any refills. You have to call the office or you have to come in and see me again Um, and that kind of thing. And so they are starting to, to guard it. However, probably not enough, but then again, what do you do with somebody, you know, that you've been rattling off these prescriptions for, for years and you try to cut them off cold Turkey. So it's a really tough situation that we've, uh, that we've put ourselves in, especially in this country. Yeah, definitely. And and to be honest too, um, if if you've been taking ten times the amount than you should be taking, uh, the withdrawal program probably wouldn't work anyway. And an addict, being an addict, will source it from another doctor and and another doctor and another doctor. So it's difficult to um, withdraw slowly without some kind of help. Yeah. And I have to say, I when I was reading your book, and there, there were so many parts in the book where, where I thought that this is going this is going to be the start of your redemption uh, when when you flushed all the the pills down the toilet, and then you know you felt really good, and that was a big step, and you felt confident. But you know, confidence can quickly fade when you're going through physical and mental withdrawals from from a drug. Uh, and you, uh, some of the visions that you describe seeing, and I believe you, <laughs> your your brother had to come rescue you and bring you back down to earth. Uh, that that was it, it was just harrowing. Um, yes, yeah. I mean, it it was one of these things where you think you can handle it yourself. Uh, isolate into the hotel. I threw about a hundred ambient 
plus others into the toilet. And then what happens is, is your body can't handle it and psychosis can uh, come and you would actually be in a much worse position than you were before. So my brother had to call an ambulance and um, it's not a good idea in all due respects to ever throw them all down the toilet. It's quite dangerous because you, you're you his hallucinate and you will have psychosis and it, and and it's actually a very dangerous thing to do to just say oh I'm going to tip him away and I'm going to be okay uh, I'll wait a couple of days till it goes away that that uh, that just doesn't happen you'll right. become very very ill and probably have a seizure as well yeah yeah I I, I remember uh reading an interview with with Stevie Nicks and she was talking about you know how uh, cocaine use was was obviously rampant uh, in the 70s. Uh, you know, it, they showed up for a photo shoot with uh, the famous Rolling Stone photographer, uh, you know, Annie Leibovitz, I believe is her name. And, and she would, you know, give everyone cocaine. That's what you did in those days. And, and she <laughs> yeah. and she said, yeah, and, they, and she ended up getting some fantastic pictures. But um, but at any rate, <laughs> um, she said that the withdrawal from cocaine was one thing. But when she got off benzos. That, that's a much harder about seven yeah. weeks but you see if you're taking a lot of cocaine and you get paranoia now i saw this with gino hernandez one week before he died where oh. he was um isolating which a lot of addicts do in when they're really progressed and they're using vast amounts and and there is a vice tv special coming out soon uh, a documentary series. Uh, they they actually flew me to Toronto, and uh, I explained what Gina was like in those last um, or that last week. Um, because when I was with him, when he was using a lot of cocaine, he was very very paranoid, and he brought a gun out and he did some silly things, and um, so that was a real late at the end of of terrible cocaine use and one week later he did die from it yeah i i was i was blown away i had no idea that that you had started to develop a friendship with him and were around him that close at the time he passed away um i think yeah i think you said it was about a week week uh, a week later he he was he was dead and i you know i just <sighs> I look at you know the, the guy who who helped turn me from mild mattered referee to nefarious heel Eddie Gilbert, uh, yeah. you, you know another guy. All, all these all these guys with brilliant minds, so much potential, and you often hear like, oh, I wonder if if David Von Erich had lived. Uh, would that have changed the course of wrestling history? And I, I don't think any any one man could have done that. But I, I do often think, gosh, you know, what if David, what if Chris Adams, uh, Gino Hernandez, Rick Rude, Eddie Gilbert, what about, what if all of these guys had somehow gotten cleaned up and were still with us? What would their impact have been on wrestling? What would they be doing today? Um, I did not know about uh, Chris's aptitude for booking 
until I heard you on Jerry Jarrett's podcast where you were talking about uh, he just had a natural gift for it. He's one of those, I guess, unsung heroes who probably contributed a lot, a lot of creative ideas, but was never given the book. Yeah, um, I spoke with Jerry about that because the the ex-wife angle was Chris's idea and Jerry really let him, you know, call the whole angle. It was his angle. Um, but he was very, very creative and he did book a lot of his own shows as well. Like he took his own show on the road um, to a few smart uh, spot shows. Um, but again... You know, he he did. He was also seeing the Mark doctors and that, and I knew they had given him. I actually gave him testosterone. They gave him thyroid medicine for some reason. They gave him Celexa, which is an antidepressant, um, Xanax, and all the rest. And I can't imagine how I can't how he could have functioned. But I think um, obviously when the time of his death. He he wouldn't have really been think been able to think at all. I mean, we all know he had an alcohol problem. He's very much a Jekyll and Hyde when he was drinking and got himself into some huge troubles with uh, butting the head uh, a pilot, yeah. a co-pilot on yeah. on the mm-hmm. on the plane. He got put in jail for actually beating up his wife Tony. Um, but all these things and troubles, there's another girl he gave DHB to who died. Um, these, these have all happened under the influence of alcohol and drugs. So such a dangerous, such a dangerous right. game, isn't it, with, with drug and alcohol? It's it's uh, it's Russian roulette in, in a lot of cases, um, and especially you know especially in in the wrestling industry, which you know I I'm almost uh, you hear some of the old timers uh, and guys who they managed to survive. Uh, some of them may, you know might be living a, a living hell right now uh, because uh, they the. That lifestyle drained their finances and drained them physically. But, you know, they, they sort of make fun of the superstars today who stay in their rooms and play video games. And, you know, you might live a lot longer if if your if your addiction is limited to Madden football uh, and FIFA. Uh, yeah. And, and that's and that's and that's really that's the Brian Lawler who I know. You know, he, he didn't. You know, he would need a he would need a biscuit. This guy, he was, you know, now, granted, I think Brian obviously was taking steroids to compensate for his lack of height and and to get himself in the best shape possible should that WWF call come. But other than the other than, you know, I hate to say other than copious amounts of steroids, he was uh, straight uh, and and sober as a judge. But he would not touch alcohol. He would not touch any kind of uh, class A drug. And I think when he went to WWF, he endured some bullying uh, because of who he was and who his son was. And all the guys who came through Memphis remembered Brian. You know, Brian just carried himself like his character. 
you know, that cocky, arrogant walk. And this is, you know, I, I, I talked about the first time that I met Brian. He was delivering pizzas in high school, but he was driving one of his father's old Lincoln Continentals. <laughs> and yeah. so he was like the cockiest, most arrogant pizza guy you've ever <laughs> seen in your life. But he he was just a natural for the business and really had a great mind for it. And I think could have, he's another guy, I think, you know, could have been a could contributor. Yeah. yeah, and 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 really could have been a superstar uh, had he not gotten involved with the wrong crowd in WWE. Mm-hmm. It, it is difficult to overcome um, for people that do have addiction. I mean, um, so many people do require um, some help of some kind, but um, even that, when people do try to help them. It really is only successful if if the person is to go and take the courage and 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 admit that they're doing it and to get the help. But a lot of them are in denial and they don't actually think that they're doing anything wrong. So until it starts to hurt their loved ones and and the people will notice like a difference in whether they show up for work or if their appearance. Um, is like if they might see that if they've neglected their parents or they might lose weight or have financial problems um but uh it's it's just if if you know an addict um a lot of the time they hold a lot of secrets because Mm. they're in denial and they really there's a lot of guilt and shame as well so when they actually come out and admit it i think they could actually feel a lot better about themselves because now, you know, people can come forward to help them. Um, Switching gears uh, a a little bit, when when you were in Texas and then got the call uh, or Steve got the call from, from Jerry Jarrett, who was, you know, starting to, well, I guess at that point he had, he pretty much bought out the Von Erics uh, and, and talk about, Gosh, we talk about wasted potential. And and just really quickly, you know, Kevin Von Erich is another guy who in wrestling circles, a lot. Of, there's, there are a lot of bad stories about the guy. Um, one thing that struck me in your book, you talk about the softer side of, of Kevin Von Erich uh, and how nice he was to you. Uh, Billy Jack Haynes, we've all heard these horror stories about him. But I, I, I not only uh, took to heart what, what you wrote, but I remember a guy in one of the old dirt sheets. He was a bartender, uh, and he wrote this piece about the wrestlers and what they were like uh, in WWF. After the matches, they would all come in uh, in a big group. And he said, without fail, Billy Jack Haynes was the most polite, nicest guy you'd ever meet and, and always ordered an orange juice while everyone else was, was boozing it up. Uh, but then eventually you know, uh, he fell victim to some, some kind of drug induced psychosis, uh, that is still appears to be ongoing. It's just, a, it's just amazing that, that these guys can have such, you know, uh, big hearts and, and maybe a lot of times I think, I think addicts tend to be very sensitive and they, they, they feel everything. They, they feel not only their pain, but your pain and they have a lot of empathy and sometimes I think maybe it's overwhelming and they, they, they don't want to get high necessarily. They just want to dull the senses. Yeah, that, that would be a case for me um, because I, I did not 
used drugs for many, many, many years up until I actually moved from Atlanta. Um, I had a little community I really loved there and um, I was very, very happy. And I was eight months pregnant and Steve, um, obviously he'd fallen out with WCW and moved back to Texas. I just didn't have the support bearing in mind Steve was very 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 busy then because this would have been the height of the stone cold um and my my addiction would have started um too numb numb pain of loneliness and stuff like that um when I met when I met Billy he just about started and he was very very humble and polite I haven't actually spoken to him in over 30 years he sent me a text a couple years ago, randomly, just saying, I wish you well, and I'm sorry I held a lot of secrets for you, because he kind of had a bit of a separate life, which he wasn't telling me. What that was, I don't know, but um, I think he may have been selling cocaine, um, but not using it as much. But uh, I think it ended up that he did start to use drugs and uh, different pills and stuff like that so I didn't if you, you know I was only 23 so I was a bit naive then um, when I met him but I definitely don't remember him uh, using drugs or being really like nothing but a normal guy really um, I've seen some of the later stuff where you wouldn't say it was the same guy so there's a massive change in his personality yeah yeah, um, but, uh, but, but going back to, um, I, I remember a lot of the Texas uh, talent at that time, they were having to take that bus uh, from Texas to uh, Memphis and then maybe even back again. Uh, were, you inv- were you involved in any of those trips? And, uh, or, or when Steve made the move to Memphis, was, was, I, can't, I can't recall exactly because I, I was replaced by uh, Paul Neighbors, one of Jerry Jarrett's relatives. I, I kid Jerry about I kid Jerry about that to this day. I was like, you know, I was a kid living the dream, 19 years old, and then I was told my services were no longer needed. Uh, basically, just nepotism because <laughs> Paul because <laughs> Paul uh-huh. Neighbors took over as referee. I was absolutely crushed. But um, I can. Uh, but were, were you part of that group that was traveling back and forth on that bus? I I made that bus trip a couple of times um when i was talking to jerry we were talking about one of the guys was drunk and i think one of the boys had to drive it um when it ended in in dallas and i don't know why but it happened really quickly because we were doing the angle um but i but i own my own business so i was only able to do the Friday night and Saturday morning tapings because I had like 10 employees. I was doing um, a company called Genies, which where I did singing and dancing telegrams, but I had a lot of work. So I couldn't actually move uh, out there, although I'd love to have worked out there. Basically, when it ended suddenly, and I don't know the reasons why, Chris and I did ask Jerry to take Steve so he could get more experience and I don't know what Chris was doing but but Steve would come home um, 
like maybe once a week on a Friday and he would see me then. Um, but he, he didn't, um, I didn't see him a lot. I did fly into Nashville and hang out with him some of the time. But yes, I took the bus trip and, and it was very long, wasn't it? It was a long, long oh, trip. Yeah. Did you, did you take it? No, because I... <laughs> No, and I and but I I remember just I I felt I felt bad for the talent who had to endure that because uh, you're either gonna love that kind of situation if you're really if your life is professional wrestling and and that's all you know then then I'm I'm sure maybe it was fun in a perverse way uh, but I also heard some horror stories on about those bus trips and I I just was like oh my thank God I don't have to do that because I, I that I think that was at that I, I was still I was pledging to fraternity. And refereeing, I, I would actually wear my fraternity pin on my <laughs> on my uh, referee shirt, and and part of that was by design because I always wanted to switch heel, and I figured, well, if I'm dressing really nice and I press my button down shirts and wear my fraternity pin later on when I turn heel, it'll make sense. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I just manifested this this character b- before a year before or two years before Eddie Gilbert decided to to act on it. Uh, so I was I was just working really part time. It was the easiest gig in wrestling, but I, I remember just feeling bad for the talent. They just look exhausted, and then knowing that they were going to have to get on that bus after the Monday night show and and, and go back. I I think I. I didn't want to be in their in their shoes, but I do remember, and it's funny that you mentioned uh, a pivotal point with uh, in Austin's career is when he and Jeff Jarrett started having these great matches over the Southern Championship. I refereed uh, one of those matches. Uh, I believe it was one where where Steve apparently won the belt, and you know, me being a stupid kid, I missed his uh, feet on the rope for leverage. And this was, but you know, this was after a, a customary ref bump, which is going to be a staple of every Memphis finish at the time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I remember though, I, w- there weren't too many matches in Memphis of that quality. And, you know, even though I was working as a referee, this was different. This was full speed. This, this, uh, Steve had so much uh, natural gifts. You could tell that Chris had trained him well. And above all, he listened, you know, I think, you know, Jarrett uh, was sort of calling the match and I just thought it was brilliant. And we got to the back and, and Lawler asked me what I thought. I was like, I, you know, I know I'm, I'm up close. I thought it was fantastic. I think this, I think he's, this kid's actually the real deal and it's got a lot of potential. Um, And, and Jeff was raving about him too. I know that they had some heat over a paycheck. I, that Austin got because those paychecks could be very uh, demoralizing. <laughs> What's to say? I I don't I don't remember some of those matches obviously because I I think I went to Memphis just twice uh, because I was so busy in Dallas. But um, I do uh, I do recall Steve, you know, saying he was having troubles with. Um, money but but um i did help him out financially back then because i was working my business um and we we'd often go out for like a chinese and he'd say no no i can't afford a chinese but i'd say no no i'll I'll get it for you um but it wasn't too long after that really i don't think that wcw came along and um picked him up yeah 
Yeah, and I remember being completely uh, well surprised in in one sense that WCW had the foresight to sign who I thought was one of the hottest young free agents because they at that point they didn't really have a track record for developing young talent. Uh, you know, they they had Eddie Guerrero come in for a squash match with Terry Funk, and it was sort of a tryout, and they passed, <laughs> which was just, which it was, you know, just it just boggles the mind. Meanwhile, they're signing guys like PN News, um, who you know I don't know, he may have been a very nice guy, but it, but that was frustrating too when Steve when you and Steve uh, appeared there, and I know he had vivacious Veronica at, at first. Which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, um, and, and and then you were paired with him as Lady Blossom, which had you know, I, I without even knowing, I just was like, that's got Dusty's fingerprints all over it, and I was amused to read the story in your book that that indeed was the case. Yeah, I didn't uh, intend to go to WCW at all because, um. You know, again, my business I was running, um, what happened was Magnum Terry Allen, he just called my house looking for Steve, and uh, he got talking to me, and he said, I, I never met Veronica, neither did I see any of the shows or any of her work, but uh, he, they wasn't happy with the chemistry, and, and then Magnum asked me, to go see Dusty in Houston. And then they asked me to be at TV in two weeks. They offered me like 75,000. Um, and I had someone look after my business and Chris, Steve and I were dating then. And so then I went along and he said, my name was to be Lady Blossom, but I suppose I, I didn't actually try to get in there. So I suppose that was lucky. Mm. Yeah. And you also mentioned, I believe it was to to Jerry Jarrett, that, that you were surprised that other than the initial direction uh, that that Dusty gave you, that, that very little, uh, very little thought was was put into your character, even though you had shown uh, amazing potential in in the feud with Tony Adams. Um, and I was very frustrated as as a fan personally watching steve wasted even though that you know they they put him over bobby Eaton really quickly and gave him the the, the tv yes. championship but then it just seemed like he was bogged down and uh pro, you know i think he did have a program with pn news and he eventually That's got the, yeah, yeah eventually yeah eventually got the u.s championship but then uh it really seemed like he was destined to lose that to, to dustin Rhodes, who they were who they were grooming and it was just so i, I could just see this this, this, these two talents being wasted, and it, it was a frustrating time for me as a fan to watch. Uh, but then again, you were you were with Steve and starting to make it, to make some money together. Was was that a happy time for, for you both at that point? Yeah, um, I, I get what you mean about when I got to WCW because I was doing a lot of talking and uh, with the interviews Steve and I were doing, and they didn't really asked me to do any of that there was a time when uh chris adams sent in a package to uh dusty about working that same angle or continuing it up in uh, wcw but because of that uh payoff and that happened between steve and chris and they'd fallen out uh steve did not want to work with chris so that got shut down. But Dusty did say he was thinking of bring, bringing Chris and Tony in 
to do that angle. I would have loved that, you know, because Chris really was my, um, he was the one I went to and he would kind of direct me. He, right from the beginning, he gave me the character. He told me what to say. And it worked really well in um, at the Sportatorium. And, and so in WCW, I felt slightly lost. But they had me taking bumps, but then I got pregnant, so I couldn't, I had to leave. Right, right. And and I I can't help but think, you know, maybe that would have made uh, a difference for Chris, or, or, or maybe not. It's, it's, it's hard to say with somebody who's abusing substances, but I, in a way, I can almost see how that, that might have been his last shot at the big time. Yeah, uh, I think so. Because uh, he d- he did really well with the Von Erics, and um, then he told me that he was just being used as a jobber. But he also said he was fine with it because he needed the money, and it was a regular paycheck coming in there. Right, and it's just a shame because Chris Adams. I I don't know if a lot of people today remember just how over he was in texas not only as a as a heel with gino and how red hot they got but he came in at a time he was one of those rare guys to to break that uh main event scene and and befriend you know he was befriended the von erics was portrayed as kevin von erics best friend which i think in a way was initially designed just to get him over uh i almost think that that chris and the way he came across in his babyface interviews Maybe, you know, just given the the insight we have now into how his mind works, that maybe he was setting up this turn, <laughs> at least in his mind all along, because it was truly one of the most shocking turns of that era, because you just couldn't see Chris Adams doing these things. Because, you know, he had the the posh accent. He was the gentleman. Yeah. And he and really, he was a breath of fresh air from the Von Erics, uh, I think, with the Texas fans, which is part of the reason he got over so strongly yeah he did he did his best work there and then uh he was going to turn with gina wasn't he at the end with the blinding but of course uh that was after the hair match the big hair match and of course gino died just a couple of weeks later but uh, he was very creative he he was in the office but it was just his um I th- I'm going to say somewhat, possibly reputation, because I'm not sure if the offices at WWF, WWE would have been a bit wary of some of the violent issues that had happened, and that may have affected them bringing him in and using him, because he, they may have worried that he was just a little bit um, erratic in his mood swings if he was drinking. Uh, if he had gotten sober and and cleaned up, where where do you think he would be today? And wh- or what would his mark have been? Let's say in the in the wrestling war that enveloped when wrestling got hot again. I think he he would have gone on to WCW or WWF, and because he was a good worker, and and I think he would have like, I think they teamed him with Regal for a while, but um. I honestly think everybody was a bit wary of him because he because he hurt people. Did you hear like in in Israel he 
knocked a guy out, did he? Broke his jaw. I don't mm. know if you've heard Kevin. He just, he just had a few people a bit wary of him. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, I think the first story that I ever read where he was beginning to show some, some, some cracks as, as when he headbutted the, the pilot, uh, because I believe they refused to serve him more drinks on a plane. And this is, I think, right after he was starting to have a bit of a resurgence. I believe they had just put the world class championship on him uh, after Fritz had started his own world title. I'm not, not quite sure of that timeline, but. Uh, I it just I remember just being uh, sh- shocked by it because he just he just seemed like one of those guys who, uh, to me, just on the outside uh, looking in, that he that he was intelligent and he could see the the shortcomings of that kind of lifestyle uh, in the especially in the wrestling business and, it, and you know I think that's one of the reasons why Jerry Lawler has been able to endure for so long. Now, definitely, um, he, uh, he's got his own vices, <laughs> but he never touched uh, a drop of alcohol, uh, no drugs at all. And, yes. and, and so he's been able to be, you know, he's kept his mind sharp and he's been able to adapt and change with the times and had this incredible career on top. And I, I just really wish that that could have happened for, for a lot of the I guys think, who, who we've talked about today. Yeah. I th- I think that could have happened for Chris as well, and I I'm grateful to Jerry Lawler because he often gave me advice when he was at the Sportatorium, which wasn't very often, but he he was I thought he was great, and he always tried to tell me if you do this, do that. So I'm very grateful to him for that. Um, and uh, obviously, I, I, I was so impressed with you because a lot of people have badmouthed Jerry Jarrett for the payoffs. Uh, but, you know, you kind of see the big picture that he gave so many guys their start and and you came off very humble and very grateful that that he ran with you and Steve and that angle that that was pitched to him. I can I can just see Jarrett's eyes light up because he loves the idea that personal issues draw money. Yes. So that, that had, that had to be very exciting for you when you saw that, that he got that and he understood it. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, when you got that sort of realism and that soap opera kind of thing going and you really are the ex and that was a fact The uh, Chris, Tony and I obviously were really good friends and people probably thought it was a shoot, but it wasn't. It was just, um, I think too the the Chris saw it maybe like they did, they had something similar with Sunshine, I think, and uh, Precious. Oh yeah, um, yeah, that, yeah, and that was r- red hot box office. <laughs> Tony and I, we we couldn't work. We didn't know. He asked me to just be a valet. He told me to go look at a dynasty with Joan Collins on it and try to get an idea how she is on that because that's what. He would have liked me to uh, look at and look at the character. And uh, I remember I'd go out and get all these beautiful dresses and Chris would give me all these evil, evil things to say. One time it made Tony cry. <laughs> oh. It's just an interview. But <laughs> I think because it was a um, a real thing. Um, but we, we surprisingly did manage to pull off a match or two. Although we weren't wrestlers, we, we, we made it work. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds a lot like my appearances in the ring as well, because <laughs> I was <laughs> I had no training whatsoever. And I'm kind of learning on yeah. the fly. And they, they put me in uh, a legendary feud with Jackie Moore. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I know, Tony, you know, <laughs> Tony, Tony yeah, told me that when she went in as Nanny Simpson, I call her up and say, how is it? And she goes, oh, my God, Jackie Moore, she's killing me. <laughs> She's tough, isn't she? I love Jackie, by the way. I love her. I speak to her still. Yeah, I'm really proud of Jackie because I know she endured a lot of hazing, uh, to put it lightly, in the uh, Memphis dressing room. And she she overcame the odds. And, you know, a lot of those guys went on to do absolutely nothing. And here she is, a WWE Hall of Famer. Um, Yeah. yeah, she, I think Jackie's one of those who who envisioned a career for herself, and whether you know you're a fan of hers or not, she accomplished that, yeah. uh, and and really paid the price. And I absolutely had a blast working with her. Um, uh, my my girlfriend and her mother at the time were not exactly thrilled because <laughs> I was talking about the, how there's not a woman alive I can't beat up, but um, uh, really nothing to brag about there. But I have <laughs> really nice memories of working with, and, and we we actually kind of we still t- stay in touch with each other to to this day. Uh, she's yeah. she's funny. I'm hoping to run into Jackie. She and I said that we hope to get on a convention together so we could visit. And she wrote a quote for my book as well. I, I always thought she was amazing. Um, she was just someone I really respected a lot for her work. Uh, speaking of a guy who was around, I, I believe he debuted in Memphis uh, either the same week or maybe the week after uh, Steve Austin did in Memphis was Eric Embry. Uh do you have any memories of working with Eric and and how uh, how sharp was he creatively? Um, well, I I don't have a lot of memories with Eric. Um, when I was there, I only saw him a handful of times, but he was very very nice. But I didn't don't recall really knowing him that well. Okay, and when you got to when you got to Memphis and you and you walk through this cramped TV studio. With uh, you know the heels getting ready, I believe in the the coffee room of the WMC, WMC TV employees who always sit out like sore thumbs. You know exactly who the wrestlers were, <laughs> and yeah. you know exactly who you know the the camera guy was, or maybe a guy who worked up uh, uh, in the control room. It was it was <laughs> you know the wrestlers are all putting on the baby oil, and the guys are and the other guys mm-hmm. are just you know getting their their coffee and uh, quickly getting out of there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what were your thoughts on on the setup um and what would really turn out to be the last live studio wrestling show of, of its kind i was terrified <laughs> to go out there i mean i i was genuinely nervous and i think jeff jarrett uh did an interview with me uh who made made it a lot easier um, oh yeah, you guys had a, re- I think, a really heated exchange where you're in his, fa- you slap him. <laughs> yeah, and he grabs my arm, but he, he was so professional that he, you know, made it so I wasn't as nervous. But you know how it is, like when even when uh, I was at the sportatorium and Chris says, "Right here you go, go on out there." Oh, my heart was beating so fast, and I was just like, "Oh no!" But it's something to say those cameras were live and you just kind of go into this zone they're live 
you got to do it. And then it went okay. You didn't have a chance to do it again. And you knew that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it was great. And it, and it, I think it added to the danger and the excitement of it. Cause I think the fans probably picked up on a lot of that, you know, a lot of that crazy, nervous, uh, uh, adrenaline and crazy nervous energy that you go through, especially in Memphis, because I remember, you know, the format, you know, Jerry Lawler would be riding the TV on the way to the, the, the parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) And and so, uh, and then it would be Lawler would see something and, and he would call an audible. You know, and I, you know, go out there and, uh, you know, go, yeah, go like there. five minutes before. Yeah. And, you, yeah. And, in, and in my mind, I was like, can you tell me this like three days in advance and I'll get it right? <laughs> and then you just do it. But it works out, doesn't it? It just works out when you're out there. It, and it re- yeah, it like, really does. Wow, it's really cool. I loved it, you know, but before you're like nervous and then it works out and, and it's exciting to know you did a good job. Well, to me, I think, you know, that's one thing with, with guys like Steve Austin and, you know, Mick Foley came through the areas, Cactus Jack. And then when he first got the uh, Mankind gimmick, they sent him to Memphis. And one of the biggest thrills of my life was was picking up uh, Mick. And here's this guy who had been in WCW and, uh, you know, signed this big WWF deal. And he is staying at one of the scummiest, cheapest hotels in the city of Memphis. <laughs> to probably, probably the same one me and Steve were at, at first because of his money situation. <laughs> what, was it across from the Summer Twin Drive-In? Uh, I can't remember. Was it, what was it called? Do you remember that? Oh, oh God, I have no idea. It wasn't the Admiral Bimbo, I know that. but <laughs> I, I can't remember, but the other one we stayed at in Nashville was called the Congress Inn. Oh. Remember that? Um, I don't. Uh, whenever I made a national trip, I usually came right back. But we uh, always had to find ones that were, you know, obviously cheaper. Yeah. But, but we we devised little games and stuff that entertained us. So in some ways, they were funner days sometimes. Yeah, and the, and that yeah. weird how it how it works. Yeah. You know, it's like because uh, it it sounds like from reading your book. Uh, you know, Steve was so driven and, you know, a lot of times people say, ah, you know, the best wrestling characters are the ones who really get so wrapped up in their character that you really can't tell the difference. And I, to me, when the lines start blurring like that, yes, it can lead to some incredible promos and incredible personalities, but sometimes those blurred lines, uh, can make things very difficult, especially I think when you try to adjust, to the real world when the tears stop. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and I think, uh, a, a lot of guys go through that, but, uh, it, it was really interesting to read, uh, about Steve's early days and trying to find that character, uh, and you two putting your heads together and developing, uh, stone cold Steve Austin. And thank God that, um, his tea was getting cold. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Or we might have been stuck with the ringmaster uh for, for yeah, all those Yeah, he hated the ringmaster and we were watching a, a show actually randomly just changing the channels. So so this show came on about this guy called the Iceman and I know they use that name with the um, uh, Iceman King Parsons, mm-hmm. but he wanted a character with that kind of 
ice-cold feel. And I remember he called uh, Vince, the office, and I remember him and Brian Pillman laughing when all these faxes were, I mean, hysterically, when it was the from, uh, what did they call it, say, Fang McFrost, um, Ice Dagger, and I just remember <laughs> literally rolling on the floor, him and Brian Pillman. And um, and then Steve was like, oh, I don't, I don't know what name to call me. And I and I, I remember he was sitting on the bed in the bedroom, and I said, well, look, don't worry about it just now. Just drink your tea before it gets stone cold. And then I went, hey, there you go. There's your name, Stone Cold. And he smiled, and that was it. But, it, yeah, it was, was kind of just about a cup of tea. <laughs> wow. That's that's amazing. Um, yeah, and thank God it wasn't something like eat your digestives. Because <laughs> <laughs> wrestling, <laughs> wrestling history could be a lot different. It's it's. I, I mentioned that to you before we went on the air that I was drinking coffee and you were gonna have uh, maybe perhaps some tea. And I recommended, well, you know, have some uh, digestive digestive biscuits, uh, which are always a staple in uh, in my oh, household. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and as I told you, about the first words to that my wife, my wife says to me every single morning, you know, I'll say, "Hey, honey, good," because I'm 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 a lot more of a morning person than she is, and I'll you know, "Hey, good morning, just sleep okay," and she's just like, "Get up and put the kettle on." <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Anything that ever goes wrong in England, you could get in a car wreck. You could you could have something. Put the kettle on. Put the kettle on. Cup of tea. That's that's the answer to everything. A cup of tea. Put the kettle. Yeah. On. Yeah. 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 Or or you'll find or you'll find the answer over a cup of tea. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like okay. So now we're go- here's what we're gonna do. First, we're gonna put the kettle on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's <laughs> so true. Oh my gosh! Uh, and you know, and one thing that I, that uh, I, I was quite taken with as I was reading about your childhood growing up and what a great time that was to grow up in England. Um, and you mentioned you were a big ELO fan. Yeah, I, I met Jeff Lynn. Yes, big. Chris and I were. We were. We actually went out one night after a match, and and um, I I recognized him. And I said, oh, my God, it's Jeff, Jeff Lynn. And he invited us to a party after. But I love ELO. They're brilliant. I still got to listen to their music now, and I got some of it. And uh, I just think he's great. He's actually been touring the UK just this last week. Oh, my gosh. I, I saw them two years ago at the Hollywood Bowl and was absolutely blown away. Uh, it, yeah. it was it was uh, it it was one of the best shows I've ever seen at the bowl. In fact, they they were playing two nights, and my wife and I were trying to rearrange our schedule so we could go back the very next night and see him again. So uh, that that's how that's how good a performance it was. And you, oh, and you, yeah, almost, you, you almost you almost forget how many just how many hit songs they had. You almost like oh my gosh, I totally forgot that's that. Of course, that was the ELO. Yeah, yeah, loads one after the other. If I put on their album, it's just good song after good song after good song all the time. I, I'm definitely going to see them in concert as soon as I can. If uh, they're so, in my area. 
JD, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit uh, more about what you're doing now. Uh, you know, thank God you came out uh, on the other side of of your addiction and uh, got sober. And and again, when I'm when I'm reading your book. I, I think, oh my gosh, okay, this, this is where we get to the happy stuff. And then a relapse. You know, relapse is very much a part of your story. Yes. And, I'm glad, I'm, and I'm glad that you, you do cover that because a lot of people get so defeated by that when they slip the first time that it's hard for them to go back. So I hope people who read your story realize that sometimes that's how it goes. It's not the same for everybody in recovery. Uh, but uh, your story does have a happy ending. And I'm so glad that you were able to reunite with your mother who also got sober. Um, yeah, my mom got sober many years ago um, from hers was alcoholism. Um, with me, I I actually went into rehab. So I had a long stay in rehab for about six months because sometimes I don't think 21 days is enough and everybody's different. But uh, towards the end of my rehab, I'd written uh, lots and lots and lots of notes, which did end up the book, because you're encouraged to write a lot of your thoughts and feelings, and not all about others that you blame for everything that happens, but mainly also about where you went wrong. Um, so towards the end of my last day in rehab they'd often ask me to help out with some of the newer clients coming in and look after them and teach them what I'd learned so I started working on the other side in the rehab just before I was leaving by uh, doing the work with the newer clients and a lot of the times it helps if someone has been an addict in that industry because you can identify so if someone you don't know how I feel about this or that I can say oh yes I do I've been down that road um and after I left rehab I went to work um in a very large um rehab in Kensington in London and I was shocked because there was a, there was like a barrister in there. There was a, a police officer. Um, there was an owner of a football club, and, and addiction just doesn't have a favor. You know, it doesn't favor anybody. So it can happen to anyone. And uh, basically, then I was uh, taking a course in drugs and alcohol counselling, um, and I was hired where I would give the detox meds and help them in the group therapy and uh, after that um, I started to work for a charity um, and doing the same thing so it's 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 quite a nice feeling if you feel passionate that addicts can get better if if people who've been through it can help others so I did actually start working as a addiction counsellor Okay. And what is your relationship today with your daughters? Uh, you know, to, I, I know that there were some rough patches there uh, as you were getting sober uh, and it looked like 
you know, that uh, you had their support, you were going to get sober, but then you realized, you know, you, you can't just do it with family support. You actually need professional help in, in, in a lot of cases. Uh, can you tell me what uh, what your life is like with them now? It's absolutely fantastic. We're very, very close and I I love them and they're very proud of me. But this is the sadness too of addiction is Although you're wrapped up in, in the beginnings in denial and secrets and shame and guilt, um, you're not liable to talk too much about what you're going through, but all your loved ones are su- suffering along with you. Um, and so sadly with, with addiction, you hurt the people that are close to you. Um, so that was really rough, but my daughters i'm i'm six years now so um my daughters and i have an absolutely brilliant relationship we're very very close so anything is possible you know if you 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 get the support that you need and you can repair relationships and there's been repaired with their dad as well because the book was written two years ago um and Cassidy was with her dad went over to LA with her dad three months ago and they went for dinner and my other daughter that already lives in LA she sees and talks to her dad all the time so the book is a blessing because relationships are being repaired from everything that happened and so it's never too late to get help and support and change everything around and and it's it's not it's not you don't have to have sick because people have this thing is a stigma um people are going to judge me this or that well no you're just really unwell and you can build back these relationships like um i would build back my relationship with my other daughter if i could but i haven't actually spoken to my eldest daughter in a while. So that's something I still have to work on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just really quickly, what, what was Steve's reaction to the book? Um, Steve's not given, in all honesty, he's not given me a reaction to the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh, the fact, the fact that he's repairing it with his daughters um, and my book is, not a hit piece on anyone. My book oh no, not, not at all. Yeah, not it's, not at all. Yeah, yeah. No, I I didn't I didn't get that impression uh, at all when I was reading your book. And if anything, you know, we all we often you know I read Dynamite Kid's book, and I was a big Dynamite Kid fan, as I know you were when you were younger. Yeah, uh, just a phenomenal for performer and we and we read about you know we get his perspective and the wrestler's perspective of what it's like to uh have that kind of insane travel schedule that those guys had maintain this physical appearance that frankly you know didn't suit his body carrying around all that muscle mass he just wasn't built that way um and you know uppers downers you know all this stuff and trying to catch a plane and and then uh you know you pass out on the plane and then you got to wake up and go to the town uh, but we don't get the perspective a lot of times of the family at home and what they're going through. And so I think that's one thing that your book does cover. You're brutally honest 
more so about your own shortcomings and your own struggles than you are sharing details about the boys, which I I thought was incredibly refreshing for a wrestling book. Yeah, when I when I look back, um, Steve and I were really happy in Atlanta, um, along with the uh, moving and some postnatal depression, loneliness, it and the combination of him then. Because he didn't just do um, wrestling. He was designing T-shirts. He needed to do hunting because he was very uh, tired and he needed to unwind. But um, there wasn't anything major that happened other than we were both um, going through. He was going through a lot of pressure and I was going through some addiction and I wouldn't like to think that Steve and I can't just sit down and I I did make amends with Steve when I was in rehab and just say, look, we've got two beautiful daughters or three beautiful daughters um, that um, will be there. They're going to have babies, you know, they go to college. We all, the past can all be put, the book did put the past behind me, by the way. And I hope that, we can be both be there for our kids and and then it would be a really happy ending for everyone i love that the book was sort of therapeutic for you in 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 that sense and enabled you not to dwell on the past but to almost clear away that wreckage and 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 move forward, um, and 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 really, it comes at a great time because you know guys are continuing to have these issues. We recently lost my friend Brian Lawler, a guy who really deserved better and had a real sensitive side and wrote poetry and yeah. really just wanted to be loved by his father, um, and then wasn't accepted in WWE. This is and again, this a lot of this is my opinion, just having known Brian, um, and it's just a shame that that's the path uh, that that his life took and i think you know having discussions like this um and putting it out in the open i hope that this uh perhaps helps some people uh well Jeannie, listen i i've really enjoyed uh, reuniting with you and i've loved our exchanges back and forth on twitter and i've enjoyed talking with you today uh i would love to for you to come back at, at some point and talk a little bit more about uh, actual wrestling i i uh, i feel like we didn't get into that area as much as i would have liked uh but your story is is multifaceted uh with uh not only a love for the business and achieving that success but also the enduring the struggles that come with the profession well thank you so much for having me and i'm really grateful and i've enjoyed talking to you well uh stay in touch and and i'll do the same and we'd love to have you back on kfr okay thank you and that was great talking to Jeannie again after all these years. And I want to thank everyone who suggested that I bring Jeannie onto the show. Uh, a lot of you have written in after reading her very powerful book saying it was one of the most honest accounts of professional wrestling that they had ever read. I was uh, really moved when I read it, and it really opened up uh, some interesting questions and conversation today. As a matter of fact, if any of you have any questions for me, I am finally, I'm opening up the floor. Uh, if you have any topics or anything you'd like me for me to cover, anything you'd like me to answer, please post it on my Facebook page. And I promise you, we will take a dip into the mailbag very soon on an episode of KFR. I got a question uh, for you. Uh, <laughs> okay, go ahead, Brian. Whatever happened to all that classic audio you promised us that we were going to be hearing each week on the show? What are you talking about? 
early on, go back to maybe episode one, you said, we have this amazing treasure trove of classic audio. And then each week we listen to your fantasy of chasing Mil Moscaris around the world or whatever the hell you're talking about. (laughs) Well, okay, so we got a little bit sidetracked. But I do have an interesting clip for you today. And that, my friend, is Danny Hodge. Of course, like Mil Moscaris, he comes into Memphis and he's a heel. And he's going after the King Jerry Lawler. Now, what's interesting about this clip from WHBQ is this is the Saturday before Jerry Lawler's last appearance in the territory before he is banished after he and Jerry Jarrett have some disagreements over whether the Southern Heavyweight Champion should make all the towns, specifically, I believe, on the other side of the state in Knoxville for Ron Fuller. Uh, Lawler is finishing up. Monday night against Jack Briscoe, a match he will lose clean as a baby face. Um, and that is to kind of wrap up that storyline before they send him off. But he still has a date in Jonesboro, Arkansas that night. And I don't know if Danny Hodge is having a little bit of fun here, but he sounds really sadistic. And I think he is insinuating that he is going to stretch a young king on his way out into a pretzel. Maybe I'm reading something into it. You decide. Let's go to that classic audio clip right now. Another great man called Jerry Lawler. He's been around here for a long time. That's right. Jerry Lawler is the king of wrestling. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight in Jonesboro, Arkansas, you better not dare miss it. Because I want to show you who's really the king, who is the greatest, who is the best. I can show you more wrestling in five minutes than most athletes can in an hour. I want to be the king also, and I'm going to show all you fans in Jonesboro. I know that you're going to holler for Jerry Lawler, but you know what? I don't think I'm going to let it bother me. I'm going out there to beat the man, whip him. I'm going to thump his gourd. I'm going to squeeze him till he gives up, till he begs, Danny, please, please don't hurt me. Because I'm going to squeeze that head till juice runs like an apple, like a watermelon. Because, baby, you are looking the greatest. You know, I never lost a match in college. The youngest man to ever, can't you be a little quiet? You got no class at all. It's all low. You know, I'm the youngest athlete to ever make the Olympics. And you know what? I'm the only man, two-time Olympic champion. I'm the only man to hold the national boxing title. I've won everything. And it's all going to happen right in Jonesboro, right in Memphis. You're now looking at your new hero, ladies and gentlemen. Take a good look. And that was Danny Hodge, and apparently Lawler did make it out of Jonesboro without his head stuffed up his ass because he did meet Jack Briscoe in the main event on Monday night and did go out, knocked off the throne without his crown, banished for about six months when he would return triumphantly dressed all in white to banish the Mongolian stomper and regain his southern heavyweight throne. Well, I think that about wraps this episode up. Brian C., I, I, I open it up to questions, and immediately, bam, you get an answer. How about that? There you go. Bam. C., as you said before. <laughs>
<laughs> and please, I, I mean that sincerely. If you want to know anything else, if there's any classic audio I can track down or video, please let me know. And we will try to do that on a future episode of KFR. Just to remind you, Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden. You can follow Brian at Great Brian Last. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And yes, as we get closer to the holiday season, a wild and woolly array of Memphis Wrestling merchandise can be yours at memphiswrestlingtees.com. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling. <laughs>